I should like to call your attention this morning to the message of the 63rd Psalm. Let me read again the first three verses of the psalm. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. But I'm anxious to deal with the message of the entire psalm. Many of you will remember that we were considering it last Sunday morning also. And we found it to be a psalm composed by David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Probably at the time when he was escaping from his own son Absalom who had risen in rebellion and insurrection against him. Whatever the particular circumstances happen to be, it doesn't matter. The point is that David was out of Jerusalem in the wilderness, pressed by enemies in great uh, trouble and difficulty on all hands. And here he shows us how he reacts to that adversity. Now, we were looking at this last Sunday, and it came after what we were looking at the previous Sunday, namely Moses being called of God when he was in a wilderness in the same way to lead the children of Israel out of the captivity of Egypt into the land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey. Here are two great Old Testament men, Old Testament characters, men of action, men who were outstanding leaders in the history of their race and people. And what we find, of course, common to the two men is this, that the thing that they valued above everything else was their knowledge of God and their communion with him. That was the secret of both these men. They were gifted, of course, in other ways, remarkably so, both of them, men of unusual capacity and power. But they make it quite clear, and not only in these particular incidents, but in all that we know concerning them, their history and what was written by them, they realized that gifts, however good and wonderful they may be, are never to be relied upon ultimately in these matters. Nothing matters, finally, save the knowledge of God. And here David has summed it up for us in this striking and wonderful phrase, Thy loving kindness is better than life. David here doesn't plead for life. What he wants is the loving kindness of God. Having that, he says, I'm ready to face everything. This is the most important thing in the whole of his life and of his experience. Now, I, I come back again to this because here surely is the very essence of the Christian faith. This is what we are all meant to have. Not a mere head theoretical knowledge, but a living vital experience of God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, this is important, I want to suggest to you, for many, many reasons. Obviously, it's of supreme importance from the standpoint of personal experience. We're living in a difficult and a trying world, and we all of us, sooner or later, f find ourselves in some sort of a wilderness. And there, nothing matters but this. When you're bereft of all the things that you normally have and enjoy, health, strength, 
wealth, friends, entertainment, all these things, when you're suddenly laid down by some serious illness, those things are of no help and no value to you. You're just left alone, and there nothing matters except your knowledge of God's loving kindness. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. And so I say the great thing is that we should know always that he is there and that we have this access and that we can enjoy his presence in the most humbling, the most difficult, the most trying circumstances. It is the essence of wisdom from the standpoint even of personal experience. But I have a second reason for emphasizing this, and that is that I am more and more convinced that this is the ultimate way of evangelism. There's a striking word in the Old Testament which tells us that uh, many joined themselves to Judah when they saw that God was with them. It had been a time of declension, you see, and people had been forgetting God and turning away from him and they'd got into difficulties. Some had become cynical and they were doubting and denying all their old faith and religion. But something happened to certain people in Judah. They underwent a kind of reformation and revival. And what we are told is just that, that many joined themselves to them when they saw that God was with them. And I'm quite sure that this principle operates today and will operate as much as it did in those ancient times. In other words, I am convinced that the way whereby we can attract the masses who are outside the church and outside Christ back to the faith is to show that God is with us. People are not interested in something theoretical. They have their own theoretical interests, and they can put up that against what you claim to believe. But the thing that always convinces people is reality. If they see that there's something about your life, a certain quality, a certain calmness and equanimity, a certain ability to be more than conqueror in every kind of circumstance, if they see that when everything is against you, you still triumph and prevail, whereas they don't, they'll become interested in what you've got. They'll want to know more about it. And I am convinced, therefore, that the greatest need today is Christian people who know and manifest the fact that they know the living God and that to them his loving kindness is better than life. In other words, there is nothing more important than assurance, assurance of salvation. It is the Christians who have assurance and peace and joy who have ever been used of God in the propagation and the spreading of the truth. It's the great secret, and it is the secret of triumphant living, and as I say, it is the secret of true evangelism. Very well, then. Now, here's the question. We've been looking at this. We showed how David illustrated it last Sunday morning. I'm now coming to a very practical aspect of this matter, and I'm going to put it like this. How can this be obtained if we haven't already got it? Are we in this position? Can we say with David, Thy loving kindness is better than life? Can we say, There is none on earth that I desire beside thee? Have we this knowledge, this living, 
vital knowledge of God that David had, that Moses had, that the saints of the Bible have all had. Well now, the question is, I say, someone may ask, how can this be obtained? And here we deal with a most vital and important matter. The first answer I would give to this question is this. We must believe that it is possible to us. Obviously that must come first. If you don't believe in the possibility of this, well then you will never seek it. And obviously you will never find it. And there are many today who not, do not seek this. And that is because they do not believe in it. There are many today who would regard this kind of thing as ecstasy or enthusiasm and they dislike it heartily and speak against it. You will know that throughout the long history of the church whenever something vital happens to individuals or to a group of people when there is a kind of revival and reformation the charge always brought against such people is enthusiasm. The formal church never likes a living religion or a living faith. And it regards it as scance. It regards it as something which is dangerous. This, this is ecstasy. This is enthusiasm. This is but a riot of the emotions. This is something against which a man should guard himself. Now, I could illustrate that at great length from many epochs and eras in the history of the church. I needn't do so. You know, the, the, the view which says that a Christian is a man, after all, who lives a decent life, he's a good fellow, and attends a place of worship now and again, uh, and, well, there it is, that is Christianity. And if you go beyond that and talk about some personal knowledge or experience, well, you're regarded as being in, not only in a dangerous condition, some would even begin to doubt the very question of your sanity. I've quoted it often before. Lord Melbourne's remark. He says, things have come to a pretty pass if religion's going to start becoming personal. You see, this whole objective, detached, theoretical view of the Christian faith, it dislikes this personal emphasis and especially this thrilling personal experience. Religion is that which makes a man decent, but nothing else, nothing beyond that. Well, then there are others who... Um, don't seek this because their case is that this is something that belonged only to the New Testament times. You may say to them, but look here, go to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And there you find the Apostles on the day of Pentecost in such a condition that some people said they were drunk, filled with new wine, in a kind of ecstatic condition, filled with an exuberant joy and a spirit of exaltation. Oh, yes, they say, that's all right, you know, but uh, that was the beginning of the church, of the book of Acts. There's a great teaching at the present time which tells you not to pay too much attention to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's a dangerous book, they say, to derive your doctrine from. You mustn't find doctrine in the book of Acts. So you discount most of what you read in the book of Acts, saying that it was simply for those times and not meant for us. Well, of course, we've dealt with this argument before. The answer to that is this. You simply cannot understand the epistles except in the back light of the background of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. You can't read the epistles without seeing that there was this exuberance, this joy, this certainty, this knowledge. And therefore, there is nothing more terrible, and indeed it seems to me 
to come very near to quenching the spirit unless it actually does so by saying that this was something that was only meant for New Testament times. And then others uh, are not interested in this because they dismiss it at once by saying, oh, I don't, I don't dispute the uh, validity of the experience. I'm not denying but that uh, people like your Moses and David and Paul and others have had these great experiences, but surely this is only for certain special people. It's not meant for everybody. Now, the classic uh, example of that mentality, of course, is uh, what you get in the Roman Catholic and every other Catholic type of faith. What they teach is this. They divide up the people into two groups, the uh, religious and the ordinary, or the clergy, if you like, and the laity. They make the definite division. There is a kind of aristocracy, they say, in the Christian realm and in the church, and there is the ordinary people. And, of course, the ordinary people are not meant to have these experiences or even to seek them. That's only for the saints, and only certain people are saints. The church decides who's a saint, and they canonize the saint. And he's always somebody quite exceptional. There are not many saints. But the ordinary people, the rest of us, are not meant to be saints. Well, you see, this is a teaching which at once would automatically exclude this. You just start by saying, well, obviously I'm not one of those special people. I'm a man of affairs and I've got to live my life in this world. I haven't got time for, to do this sort of thing. Of course, if I became a monk or something like that, then no doubt I should have these experiences. But I'm not called to that. I'm a kind of secular Christian. I'm not one of these spiritual Christians. There are many, I say, who take up that attitude who are not Roman Catholics. It's a very pernicious teaching and it insinuates itself. It's very subtle. And so many Christian people say, no, no, it's not meant for all. It's only meant for certain special people. And then my, the last uh, reason I want to deal with this morning is this, and I regard this as a tremendously important one at the present time. And now I'm speaking particularly to those who belong to evangelical circles. It is the danger of what uh, can best, perhaps, and most conveniently be described as Sandymanianism. Now let me expand that. There was a man called John Glass in Scotland towards the middle and the end of the 18th century, and he had a son-in-law an Englishman of the name of Sandyman. And they propounded a teaching that became tremendously popular and had a wide influence. What was it? Well, it was this, that uh, you need pay no attention whatsoever to your emotions in connection with religion, in connection with your Christianity. They took that uh, statement, you see, in the 10th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, Whosoever shall confess with the mouth, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And they said, that is all you need do. If you say in words, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead, they say, you are saved. The scripture says so. But you say, but I, uh, I don't feel anything. Oh, they said, you're not told to feel anything. Don't worry about your feelings. Feelings don't count at all. All you've got to do is to say this. You believe this and you say this. And then you are saved. 
Now, that's what's meant by Sandemanianism. The name doesn't matter, of course. It had a great popularity at that time, and it did very great harm. It wrought much havoc in the life of the church for many, many years afterwards. As a movement, it has virtually disappeared. But surely, the thing itself is very common. Isn't this a very common teaching? You are told the truth, and then you are asked in an inquiry room or somewhere, do you believe that? You say, yes, right, you're saved simply because you say that you believe this. But then you may say, but I don't feel anything and I haven't felt any different. They say, it doesn't matter at all. Don't worry about your feelings. It's a question of believing. So the whole emphasis is put upon an intellectual belief. And if you can add to that that you've now tried to discipline your life a bit and have taken on a certain moral teaching such as is found in the scriptures, you are regarded as a good and an excellent Christian and you don't need any more. You've had everything uh, there at that moment of conversion. The Holy Spirit has come to you in all his fullness. You don't seek any more. There you are. You've never felt anything at all. You have had no living experience of God or of Christ but you say you believe, and you're assured that you're all right. And, of course, it's carried over to the whole doctrine of assurance. You go to such people, such teachers, and say to them, but uh, I, I read of people who say that uh, they have a, a great assurance of these matters. Well, it's all right, says this teacher. You should have assurance. Well, you say, how can I get this assurance? Well, they say, it's quite simple. Come along. So they open up their scriptures to you. And they say, now look at this. This is what the word of God says. Whosoever believeth in him is not condemned. Whosoever believeth not, of course, is condemned already. But whosoever believeth in him is not condemned. Do you believe that? You say, yes, I do. Very well, they say. There it is. The, the scripture gives you the assurance. But you say, I don't feel anything. But they say, you're not meant to feel anything. You're just meant to believe the word of God. Now, this is the common teaching today with respect to assurance. It's all something which we take by faith. Don't feel anything. You're even discouraged to consider feelings. Take it by faith. Believe the word of God. Don't listen to anything else. There it is, objective outside you. You take it. And so many people take it and they think that they have full assurance of salvation and that they have all that the New Testament and the Bible have to offer them. But my dear friends, isn't there something wrong? Where is the knowledge of God? Where is the sense of awe? Where is this great thing found in the Bible when men and women have known that they've been in the presence of the living God? Isn't this the explanation of the great difference between modern evangelicalism and that older evangelicalism that obtained until the middle of the last century? Isn't this the great contrast, for instance, between uh, today and the period of the Protestant reformers and the Puritans and the early Methodists, whatever their theological complexion might have been? Where is this sense of godliness come to? The sense of awe, the sense of wonder and amazement, and the joy unspeakable and full of glory. Very well, those, you see, are some of the reasons why people do not uh, seek this wonderful experience 
that came to Moses and to David and to others, they don't believe in it. And they don't believe in it for those various reasons. But as I'm indicating as I go along, this is to contradict the essential teaching of the Bible itself. The Bible doesn't teach a cold intellectual believism. It teaches an experience which involves the whole man, the entire personality. It teaches that this is something that is meant for all. The Bible nowhere confines this to a particular age or to a particular type of person or to only select people. The Bible offers this to all. Now the epistles are surely full of this. Rejoice in the Lord always, says the apostle to the Philippians, and again I say, rejoice. Now that doesn't mean a sort of backslapping and a, a carnal joviality and hail fellow well met. It doesn't mean that. You can't imagine such things in connection with the Apostle Paul. No, no. It's a joy which is unspeakable and full of glory. It is a holy joy. It's a deep joy, like a mighty river, like a great river flowing down to the sea. And this is something that is offered for all. The Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians, all the members of the church and the other churches to which that circular letter uh, was obviously intended, he tells them that they, together with all saints everywhere else, should know and learn the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that they should be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, this is, I say, what we are all exhorted to. I defy anybody to give me a scripture which says that this is only for some people. No, no. Christ died to bring us all who believe in him to God, to a living experience of God. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Or take the way in which the Apostle Paul put it in that portion of Philippians 3 that we read at the beginning. Here is a man, you see, who's believed for years, a great apostle, has had wonderful experiences, but he says that I might know him. Not that I have already apprehended. What he means is, not that he has no knowledge at all, but he says, I haven't got it all. I'm not already perfect. He says, I want more and more and more of this. And there he is, pressing after it, that I might know him. That doesn't mean knowing about him. This word know in the, in the Bible has such a strong meaning and connotation. It means a knowledge of personal experience. It's experimental knowledge that I might know him, entering more deeply and profoundly into this blessed experience of God. Now, the Bible, I say, offers this to all and sundry, all who are believers. This is what we are all expected to be like. And that is not only true in the teaching of the Bible. You will find that it has been true in the subsequent history of the Christian church. Again, all types, all kinds, all ages, all countries, all times, all backgrounds. It's not confined to any age, it's not confined to any type. This is the most wonderful thing. It's the most thrilling thing. Now, again, let me just prove my contention by giving you just a few quotations. And I want to show you now how this 
happens to and is true of men who may differ in their theology fundamentally and profoundly. Let me give you a quotation then from a famous American called Cotton Mather. There was a great family in America uh, from about the middle uh, of the 17th century and it went on to the middle of the 18th century. This family of Mathers, this man Cotton Mather wrote uh, a classic account of religion in the United States, the Magnali Christi Americano. It's, it's a famous book, and he was uh, an undoubted genius. He was brilliant as a boy, quite outstanding, and his erudition was quite phenomenal. He was a very great Calvinist in his uh, theology. Now, he wrote his diary, and they've been printed. And uh, th th I could give you dozens of quotations from that man's diary. Here he is, then, this brilliant erudite Calvinist in America. This is how he writes in his diary in 1700. He'd been passing through a time of difficulty and of trial. There was a particular problem pressing hard upon him and his father. His father was also a minister, and Cotton Mather was the assistant minister to his own father, Increase Mather. And uh, here he was. He tells us that he'd been actually prostrating himself on the floor, pleading with God. And this is how he goes on. All this while, while he was pleading like this and praying, all this while, my heart had the coldness of a stone upon it, and the straightness that is to be expected from the bare exercise of reason. His reason was quite clear. He was a minister. He was a preacher. And he believed the faith. There was no question about that. He'd believed it since his very early youth, and he'd been preaching it. But he says his heart was cold, and the coldness of a stone, and the straightness that is to be expected from the bare exercise of reason. But now, all on the sudden, I felt an inexpressible force to fall on my mind, an afflatus that cannot be described in words, None knows it, but he that has it. If an angel from heaven had spoken it articulately to me, the communication would not have been more powerful and perceptible. It was told me that the Lord Jesus Christ loved my Father and loved me, and that he took delight in us, as in two of his faithful servants, and that he had not permitted us to be deceived in our particular faith. Now there it is, you see. Here's a man who's believed everything that you can possibly believe, but his heart was cold. There was an absence of this sensible, living contact and realization. But all of a sudden, he says, it came, this afflatus. He can't describe it. He says, they alone know what it is who have experienced it. Now, there's one man, but let me give you a very different type of man. Let me give you a little extract from the diary of a, a man called Parkinson Milson who lived in the 19th century, up until about 1890, in fact. He was a very convinced Arminian, the exact opposite of the Calvinist. Here is a man who was a primitive Methodist and regarded by many as a ranter, as the primitive Methodists were, enthusiasts, people of ecstasy. Well, he was born in very humble circumstances, very different from Cotton Mather. He hadn't got the brain nor the ability. He was an able man, but he, he lacked the scholarship and the erudition, and so on. 
But this is how he writes about himself on October the 26th, 1874. My soul was at times in a burning rapture, almost too ecstatic for this tabernacle. Again and again I repeated the words, such as in the martyrs glow dying champions for their God. The truth is, I had to cease doing so, feeling that the heavenly wine was almost too strong for the earthly vessel. Oh, when mortality shall be swallowed up of life, I burn for Christ. This soul I offer, Christ, in flames to thee, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, these are but passing extracts. Let me put it in a little bit more doctrinal manner. Great early Puritan William Ames, he writes like this, The assurance of our calling and election is a thing greatly to be desired. Now, they knew all about the scriptures and taking the evidence of the scriptures. That's not what they're talking about. It isn't just saying, there it is. Do you believe that? Yes, well, you've got full assurance. No, no. The assurance of our calling and election is a thing greatly to be desired. This certainty is not only possible for us to attain unto, but also it belongs to our duty to make our calling and election sure. Then listen to William Perkins, perhaps the first of the great Puritans at the end of the 16th century who influenced most of the others, William Perkins. We do not teach that all and every man living within the precincts of the church professing the name of Christ is certain of his salvation, but that he ought so to be and must endeavor to attain thereunto. Now that's it quite clearly. You can be a Christian without it. But you have no right, in a sense, to be a Christian without it. You ought to make certain of this. You can be a Christian without it, but it is your business to seek it and to obtain it, to possess it, and to live in the full enjoyment of it. And let me put it to you in the form of a hymn. Here's a man, again, not as well known as any of the men I've quoted, but he enjoys the same experience. Listen to him. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know, Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. You see the direct work of the Spirit, not this external, mere theoretical, intellectual assurance. That's all right. I'm not saying anything against that, but I'm saying if you stop short at that, you're quenching the Spirit. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport, all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine. Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am his. And he is mine. Well, my dear friends, there it is. I trust that you're all convinced now that this is something that we all ought to know, we all ought to possess. Not confined to certain people, certain ages, certain places. No, no. It is meant universally for all God's children. God means his children to rejoice. The Bible is full of that. He wants us to rejoice in him, the chief end of men.
is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Are you enjoying God? We are meant to. Shame on us if we are not. Still greater shame upon us if we try to dismiss that and say, as long as I believe and live a good life, surely no more is demanded. No, no, you're meant to rejoice in him and to enjoy him forever. Very well. How then is this to be obtained? Well, David answers the question for us. This is the gift of God. There's no question about that. But the fact that it is the gift of God doesn't mean that we do nothing. Rather, because we believe it is the gift of God, we should be seeking it. The parent has the gift in his or her possession, and the child knows that. Does that mean that the child does nothing, but just acts in a passive manner, hoping that the parent is going to give? No, no, it asks and asks and asks, and keeps on asking, and becomes a nuisance until it's got it. Quite right. That's the teaching of the scripture. You can't command it. You can't take it by faith whenever you like. No, no. It is the sovereign gift of God. But that means that you should seek it. Listen to David. Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. There it is. He does it early. He starts at once. He doesn't let any time pass at all. He begins to plead with God. This is the first thing, as I was showing you last Sunday. We leave it at that. The word early conveys that fullness of meaning. But I want to emphasize something further, and that is that we should not only seek it early, but we should seek it always. Now, here is an important practical point. So often, and I'm sure we all plead guilty about this, we do this sort of thing in fits and starts. Something makes us aware of it and makes us desire it. And at once, early, we seek, then we begin to forget. But David goes on, always, listen. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. You know, my friends, once a man realizes this possibility, it does indeed monopolize him. He's got to do his work, of course his business, his profession, whatever it is, and he's got to give his full mind to that. But all his leisure time, this is the big thing. This is the thing that monopolizes. And here he says, even when I'm lying on my bed at night, that's the source, that's the ground of my meditation, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. There's no doubt about this. Once a man has had a glimpse of this, he becomes what has once been called a God-intoxicated man. You remember what Count Zinzendorf said about himself. I have one passion. It is he and he alone. And you know what happens to you. I used the analogy of human natural love last Sunday. I use it again. When you're in that state of love, your mind is monopolized by this person. If you're awake at night, your mind goes there. You're thinking about this person, not about a thousand and one things. No, no, when there's love, you're monopolized, you're held as by a magnet, and your mind is always there. That's what David says. I meditate on the in the night watches. I remember upon my bed. At all times, everywhere, he is meditating about this and seeking this. He doesn't merely start early. He keeps on and does it at all times. And I want to emphasize the eager aspect of this. There's an eagerness about it. 
You see how David goes from step to step. In verse 8, he says, My soul followeth hard after thee. He's like a dog who's got a scent and he's following it and he's following hard after. The quarry is going ahead, but the dog is following. I, my soul followeth hard after thee. Well, this is the eagerness of anyone who seeks this. Do we know anything about this eagerness, my friends? Is this the big concern, the big quest, the big passion of our lives? You read the biographies of the saints, like the people I've been reading from this morning, and ordinary saints, you'll find that that uh, is the thing they're seeking. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. They're seeking and there's an eagerness. One thing I do, says the apostle, forgetting the things that are behind, I press toward the mark, this eagerness I follow hard after thee. Here it is. And it has always, I say, been a characteristic of the people who have come to rejoice in this, the highest blessing that the Christian salvation affords, eagerness. And then another very important element in this seeking is what I would call the element of recollection. Recollection. Now, David puts this in at least two different ways. In the second verse, he says, To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. And then in the seventh verse, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Now, this is a very important practical principle. Recollection. You will notice Cotton Mather said that his heart was like a stone. We know about that, don't we? You believe the truth as it is in Christ Jesus, but what's your heart like? Someone came in to see me in my vestry here once, and indeed it's happened many, many times to me, and he said, you know what bothers me? I said, no. He said that I can sit and listen to what you've been saying about the Savior and be so unmoved. He was quite right. He believed it all, but he wasn't moved. There wasn't rapture. He felt there should be, and there should Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Very well. Well, now then, what do you do when you're in such a state? Well, it's a very good thing to do what David did, and that is to practice this art of recollection. It simply means this, that you remind yourself of what God has done for you in the past. Take up the slightest manifestation that you've ever had of the love of God. Take it up. Remind yourself of it. Start with that. Remind yourself of past blessings. Well, the couplet puts it perfectly, doesn't it, in the well-known hymn, count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. In other words, it's no use trying to work up your heart, to try to work up your feelings. People who try to work up their feelings in connection with religion are just displaying that they're ignorant of the whole thing. You can't do it. But what you can do is this. Count your blessings. Just remind yourself of facts, things that have actually happened to you. Go over them. And as you're doing so, you will find that your heart does begin to melt. But you've got to make the intellectual effort. You've got to exercise your will and you've got to count your blessings. You, you can't just work yourself up from nothing. But you say, now this is what I do know. 
you start from that. Then you go from that and remind yourself of the blessing of the promises of God. You read your Bible and you'll find great promises. Peter says that they're exceeding great and precious promises. And they are. Exceeding great and precious. Go through them. Make a list of them. Put them down on paper if necessary. And then, armed by these, go to God and plead them. Say, if this is possible, why don't you give it to me? This is what you say you sent your son into the world for, that I might know this, to bring us to God and to enable us to rejoice in you. I believe in him. Well, very well in his name, I pray thee, make this real to me. Grant me the spirit in fullness. Shed thy love abroad in my heart. And so on. Now that is what is meant by recollection. You just remind yourself in that way. You remind yourself also of the being and the character of God. God is love. God is more ready to give than we are to receive. It's all of grace. God has sent his only son into this world. That's the character of God. Well, very well then, if I don't know him as I should, what's the matter? There must be something wrong with me. It makes you examine yourself and you see your indolence. You see you're like a spoiled child. You give all your time to other things, then you run and ask for a gift from your parent. You haven't done what you were told to do. Spoiled children. That's how we act with God. So it'll make you examine yourself. And then, in humility and in contrition, Humbled and helpless and hopeless, you will go to him, you'll open your heart and you'll plead with him. You'll find the hardness and the coldness of God and God will suddenly come and visit you. Now this is this great art of recollection. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Start with what you have got, and then go through this process, and it'll lead you upwards and onwards. And then the last great principle, which David teaches us here, is this is the importance of praise and thanksgiving. Isn't this one of the great lacks in our life, our spiritual, our Christian lives? How little do we thank God? What little praise there is and adoration. What little pouring out of the heart in gratitude and in praise to God for all his mercies. We are very ready to remind him of things that have gone wrong. We are very ready to grumble and to complain. How much do you praise God, my friends, in your prayers, in your private devotions? What element... How much does this element of praise come in? Now, look at the Apostle Paul. He puts this again so perfectly in writing to the Philippians in chapter 4. In nothing be anxious, but in all things, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and then the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. This is, you see, the other aspect, of course, of count your blessings. Name them one by one. And as you do so, you must praise God and thank him. Well, think of the human analogy. What do you think of a person who takes everything from you and never troubles to thank you? Takes it for granted. 
What a terrible thing it is. It's insulting apart from anything else. But what a poor kind of personality it indicates. Always ready to hold out the hand and to take all. Never troubles to thank. Never troubles to praise. And isn't that how we all treat God? If you want to know him, my friend, if you want to know his smile, if you want to know something about this living realization that God is your God and that he's loved you with an everlasting love, that you are his child and that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you want this living witness of the Spirit, this ultimate assurance which is the final assurance given by the Spirit of God himself, by the love shed abroad in your hearts, going upwards and back to him in praise, worship, adoration and thanksgiving, I say, begin to praise God for what you have. Praise him for everything, the gift of life and health and strength. Oh, there are many people known to all of us this morning who are ill and laid aside. I think of people at this moment who'd give anything to be in this service this morning or any Sunday morning, but they're kept away by illness. Do you thank God for your health, your strength, your faculties? Oh, these gifts which he showers upon us so constantly and so freely. Thank God. David, of course, keeps on repeating this. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. And on and on he goes, saying the same thing. The king shall rejoice in God. He says it again in the last verse. Well now then, there is David's way of handling himself. A wilderness is a terrible place to be in. It's very miserable and it chills the heart. And one feels cold. Very well, says David, this is the thing to do. And it is, my dear friend, still the thing to do. If that was true of David, if he and others in the Old Testament could rejoice like that and enjoy God, how much more so we who have the knowledge of Christ Jesus and his great salvation and all that has been made possible. They simply saw it afar off. We look back upon it. We know it's a fact. And this forerunner has entered for us into heaven and is appearing on our behalf at the right hand of God. Very well, I say, give him no rest until he has satisfied the longing of your heart. Until you know, as these others have known, that I am his and he is mine. Take up that word of Isaiah. You remembrances of the Lord, he says, give him no rest until he has made Jerusalem a praise, you give him no rest until you have this blessed knowledge. Keep on. Or take a word again in the 81st, 81st Psalm. It's a wonderful expression, and I feel we all need its exhortation. Psalm 81, verse 10, I am the Lord which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. Is your mouth wide open? Or have you got a nice, smug, little evangelicalism which doesn't expect anything further, tells you you've had it all at your rebirth and conversion? There it is. All you do now is to yield yourself more and more. The answer is, open your mouth wide. 
and let something of the fullness of God enter in. Oh, this pernicious doctrine, this sandemanianism, this modern sandemanianism that keeps it entirely to the mind and is not interested in the heart and even distrusts warmth and emotion is so afraid of excesses that it quenches the spirit. God have mercy upon it. Open thy mouth wide. Listen to God speaking to you. This is what he says. Hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee, O Israel, if thou wilt hearken unto me. And God, as it were, goes on and complains. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. Have you tasted of this honey from the rock? Is your heart, is your soul satisfied? Open your mouth wide and let him put it in. The unsearchable riches of Christ the knowledge of God, the joy unspeakable and full of glory. Listen to the advice of old William Carey. Seek great things from God. Expect great things from God. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such you can never ask too much. So go on asking him that you may know him with a personal, intimate knowledge that will ravish your heart. Go on asking him until you have received. Ask, seek, knock, and it shall be opened. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.